Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome to another chapter of Muskoka's Modern History. This one about a dramatic 1920s mashup of nature and technology. Caterpillars destroying trees and airplanes bombing them with poison in a desperate attempt to save Muskoka's vacation land beauty and economy. The Muskoka Lakeland owes its natural allure to crystalline waters, irregular hulking islands of the planet's oldest rock, and dense pine, hemlock, and cedar cloaking endlessly jutting shorelines. Indigenous peoples and vacationers alike saw this evergreen woodland with different eyes than lumbermen and industrialists keen to exploit it commercially. The first group cherished trees standing as a holistic forest with which they bonded in in different ways. The second clear-cut trees for sawwood and in the particular case of hemlock, the focus of this program, for its bark because its rich supply of tannins was needed to make leather in Muskoka's three vast tanneries. In 1927, both groups, the tree huggers and tree harvesters, despite profound differences, found themselves uniting against a common enemy. Whatever it was, it was killing off Muskoka's hemlocks. These majestic trees are integral to the district's forest landscape. Their sweeping lush boughs complement the stately pines and soft, dense cedars, a compelling scene of nature, long painted, photographed, and promoted as vacation land Muskoka's true north experience. So in the summer of 1927, as hemlocks around Muskoka's lakes began to lose their needles entirely, leaving forests standing like ugly, naked corpses. The calamity panicked resort and summer camp owners, their holidaying guests and campers, and the district's many hundreds of cottagers. The adult Lamdina fissellaria, commonly called the hemlock looper, that's looper as in making a loop, is a moth of the family Geometridae. In North America, the looper is found from Canada's Pacific to Atlantic coasts and south into Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and California, where the trees it dines on grow. This moth is a creamy gray color, 
distinctive with dark lines across its scalloped wings and long feathery antennae. The looper takes wing from August to early October when she then lays countless tiny eggs on a variety of surfaces such as the moss and lichens growing on hemlock bark. The eggs overwinter on the tree trunks, then hatch between late May and mid-June. The hatched larva, the caterpillar stage of the looper's life cycle, are easily identified by such markings as intricate stripes along their bodies and small black spots. At this stage, the looper becomes an overwhelming forest presence. Vast armies of caterpillars munching away voraciously, causing extreme defoliation of their host hemlocks. Recently, recently hatched young larvae eat only the delicate new foliage of spring. While earlier hatched ones, now mature, tackle the stronger, older needles. Between them both, they devour everything, then move on to the next hemlock, leaving the woodland a barren scene of devastation, resembling a forest fire without the burning. Here's how Laurentian University's forest historian, Mark Kuhlberg, describes that 1920s summer when Muskoka's hemlock trees came under unprecedented assault the opening lines in his important new book this year about Canada's aerial war against forest pests. Quote, something was amiss in Muskoka, one of North America's most cherished and exclusive recreational paradises, and authorities were at a loss as to how to deal with it. Local cottage and lodge owners and summer vacationers were growing more anxious by the minute as their picturesque landscape was being ruined. Quote, end quote. Well, what these seasonal and full-time Muskogans did was summon Ontario forestry officials to the scene. Their investigation revealed the cause to be millions of tiny hemlock loopers about which you now already know more than most people. When these panicked Muskokans demanded what the government was going to do about the loopers, the foresters' reply was that it was not physically possible to kill bugs in forests. In this dire moment, it appeared the end of Muskoka's vacation economy was at hand, but not without a fight. Resolute seasonal Muskokans around Lake Joseph, mostly millionaire businessmen accustomed to getting their way, men able to find new solutions when necessary, captains of industry and commerce unrelenting in summoning help from any quarter when needed, were not about to yield their prized lake land retreats to caterpillars. So the real drama began. Events that meteorologists in 1936 began calling a perfect storm, referring to weather, in 1927 applied to Muskoka's environmental and politically stormy phenomenon 
of diverse elements combining in a unique way at a single place all at once. So let's see what they wear. First, after the Great War, Ontario's new farmer government created a modern department of lands and forests, which in turn formed a provincial air service that through the 1920s, began enhancing forest management by better detection and fighting of forest fires. Then continued in concert with forest, forestry interests and logging companies to confront the costly devastation of forest insects. After conducting a series of trials with specially adapted aircraft bombing infested woodlands with chemical dusts that were highly toxic to the pests, their new aerial dusting technique pushed Canada into the limelight internationally for having developed an effective weapon to prevent insects from destroying valuable forests. Second, this aerial dusting was to protect forests for the commercial benefit of logging companies. No forester considered how the same weapon might save forests for the aesthetic enjoyment of tourists and cottagers. The very definition of Muskoka's highly localized vacation economy in which forests were essential. The two goals seemed miles apart. Canada's forestry industry, especially the pulp and paper makers, conceived of trees as harvestable commodities they sought to protect until they could cut them all down to process into wood products. But Muskoka's conservationists viewed trees collectively as an aesthetic commodity that only retained its value if it remained standing and in a healthy state. Although these traditional rivals in forest use are diametrically opposed, Muskoka's well-honed pattern of bridging differences between metropolitan values and hinterland practices would lead to a first-ever aerial war against insects that benefited both. After a short break, we'll return and continue with the formation of this perfect storm of environment, culture, economics, politics, and the future of Muskoka's hemlock trees. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. We're looking at uh, the 1920s and the plague that was besetting the majestic hemlock trees of Muskoka. And we're now looking at the third factor that was creating this perfect storm around the crisis. And that was that those who wanted protection for their idyllic forests, being among the most powerful of people, became a relentless force stirring up this storm. Cottage owner George Fremantle, for one, 
told Ontario's Minister of Lands and Forests, William Finlayson, that a serious blight is affecting a great many hemlock trees on some of our many beautifully wooded islands here in Lake Muskoka. Pointing out that virtually all hemlocks on Stonewall Island, owned by a leading Pittsburgh businessman, had been killed, Fremantle emphasized how many Americans own major summer homes around this part of the lake, and if they chose not to come to Muskoka because of the devastation, it would be a serious blow to the district's well-being. He implored Finlayson to take immediate action. In addition to prominent individual summer residents of Muskoka, the owners of lakeside resorts and camps also pressed hard for government action. Their livelihood depended on visitors not turning away from ugly Muskoka as ravaged by hemlock loopers. F.J. Ames, for example, owner of Carlingford House Resort, contacted Ontario forestry officials stating that, quote, a month ago the trees were healthy and vigorous. But a plate has settled over them that is spreading with a rapidity that is astonishing. The results, she said, are nothing short of appalling. Acres and acres of beautiful trees completely stripped and killed. As a Muskokan with a summer hotel, Ames had seen other caterpillar infestations before. But, he said, the extensive and irreparable damage this one is causing, coupled with the rapidity of its spread, is such as to call for a thorough and drastic treatment if a barren wasteland is not to be the result. He pressed for hard action and did so many hundreds more. The fourth element building the storm was that the government having been spurred to action by urgent appeals from individuals with political power, social standing, and economic clout, immediately investigated. I do not know exactly what is happening to Hemlock in Lake Joseph, reported a Lands and Forest field officer ordered to the scene, adding that he'd personally seen definite evidence of the Hemlock crisis throughout the district. Then Peter McEwen, Ontario's, dis Ontario's district forester for the area inspected the trees himself and told Lands and Forests Deputy Minister E.J. Zabitz that he shared the extreme concern being expressed by people around Lake Joseph over, quote, the worst example I have seen of damage done by this pest. McEwen reported areas of 10 to 100 acres in which all the hemlock has been completely defoliated. The worms are still very active in areas, rapidly increasing in size, the district forester said. He added, I don't know if the trees will recover, but it's very doubtful that they will. He told Zavitz the infestation appears to be spread over most of the hemlock-bearing areas of the district to be epidemic in places, and at the rate it is spreading, there's a danger of the hemlock suffering the same fate as the tamarack with the soft line, meaning the trees will be killed. Fifth, despite provincial foresters now being duly sobered by Muskoka's forest crisis, 
no action ensued. Quote, this department is unable to cope with leaf-eating insects of this kind where they appear on such a large scale, close quote. Deputy, that's what Deputy Minister Zavitz was saying in all answer to all the letters pouring into his Queen's Park office from Muskoka. He said the federal government's forest entomologists were studying matters and he was awaiting guidance from them. Huh, bias in the butt, the hot potato. Yet any response from Ottawa when it came would not be to deploy forces to fight the spreading invasion because that exceeded federal jurisdiction over natural resources, a provincial responsibility. From its detached scientific perspective, the federal forestry staff only wanted to use Muskoka as a laboratory experiment to, de to determine what other parasites they might, in future, introduce into such areas to prey upon the hemlock looper. With no sign of government action at either level, desperate cottagers took matters into their own hands. They were prepared to employ any method, even toxic remedies, to protect the beauty they so deeply valued in Muskoka. A number of cottagers bought forest fire pumps and thousands of feet of hose to battle the looper. Needing information about applying poison, American businessman Fred Gratwick, who owned uh, a cottage on Lake Joseph's Burgeon, Burgess Island, asked a water pump company how to spray poison on his infested hemlocks for maximum effect. Then Gratwick sought details from the forestry entomologists in Ottawa on their recommended toxin, lead arsenate, which has been the most extensively used arsenical insecticide, for instance, against the potato beetle, from proper ratios for mixing this poisonous solution to how injurious the lethal concoction might be to men spraying trees with its hoses. A sixth factor contributing to this storm was that the plague was spreading Fall brought a cycle of change to the active season of this insect, but autumn also was accompanied by compilation of data by Ottawa's forest entomologists that not only confirmed the severity of 1927's looper infestation around Lake Joseph, but also shockingly, larger looper outbreak further northeast in a number of townships of Perry Sound District. The hemlock crisis, in short, was not limited by either time or distance. Insisting that the government take action, cottagers now took the whole campaign to another level by making particularly forceful appeals. Public officials had an obligation to combat pests that attacked industries' woodlands, they argued, but this duty was exponentially greater when the onslaughts occurred in forests that recreationalists cherished for their beauty, because such a picturesque landscape was essentially priceless. Douglas Mason, who owned the 240-acre Chiefs Island, wrote at length to the Forest Insects Division of the Canadian government, quote, the value of the Muskoka Lakes is, of course, dependent entirely upon the beauty of the wooded islands and shores. 
And to realize this, it is only necessary to imagine the district without its timber. The trees have a value very much greater than their actual commercial value as logs. I need not go into the enormous total value of the islands and lands surrounding the Skoke Lakes now used for summer resort purposes and the number of settlers and others dependent principally or entirely on the summer visitors. The extent of this is obvious to anyone who has any knowledge of the district and is, I think, obviously great enough to warrant consideration of the problem and effective action by the government. The seventh ingredient was explosive new information. It was a stunning revelation to the well-placed businessman coalescing into a Save Our Hemlocks crusade that Nova Scotia experiments in chemical dusting of forests from airplanes had recently taken place. Lake Joseph property owners obtained internal government reports on 1927's airborne forest protection operations in the Maritimes and immediately connected the dots. E.R.C. Clarkson, founder of the prestigious and powerful Clarkson Gordon accounting firm, whose Muskoka property lay at the head of Lake Joseph and now leading the anti-looper cause, was representative of Muskoka's high-profile summer residents turning up full pressure on the government to unleash aerial warfare against the hemlock uh, destroying looper in the coming year, 1928. As it turned out, the lobbying for government action was the easy part. Next month, we'll see what harrowing experiences developed with Canada's first ever aerial dusting of forests to save them for their beauty. Be sure to join me then, because the storm keeps brewing, and what it unleashed in Muskoka, then across Canada, was first in forest management, all about saving Muskoka's hemlocks. Thanks for listening. Our producer for Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, here on Hunter's Bay Community Radio, is Jacob Snowkrieger. I'm Patrick Boyer. 